Hebrews chapter 9, and beginning in verse 15. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the eternal, the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Let's pray together. Lord, write the truth of your word on our hearts. Show us the Lord Jesus. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The government of our country alone has the right to make and distribute money and to define what is called legal tender. I actually hold in my hand a dollar bill. It's what is called legal tender. There's a note on it that says this. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And there's a signature from the treasurer as well as the secretary of the Treasury, the Treasury of the United States. So I have in my hand legal tender. Legal tender is defined as, quote, anything recognized by law as a means to settle a public or private debt or to meet a financial obligation. In other words, it's satisfactory payment or a medium of exchange to pay for goods or to pay for services. If, as an American citizen, you travel abroad, you will need to find a place of monetary exchange and change US dollars into euros if you go to Europe, or pounds in England, or pesos, or Deutschmarks if you go to Germany. Wherever you go, the country you go to has their right to distribute money in the same way we do here. Every country, every government there alone has the right to make and distribute money and to define what is called legal tender. You and I can't print our own bills in our garage and get away with it. That's forgery and there are strict repercussions for doing so. You will face jail time if you're caught. With paper money or with coins, only legal tender is valid. Now, I'm sure we've got that concept. 
If you have a coin, both sides of the coin, I don't know if you knew this, both sides of the coin have to be intact for it to remain legal tender. A defaced coin on one side will not be accepted at the bank. The head, so to speak, and the tails, both must be legible. I say all this to make a point. Justice has two sides to it. It's a lot like a legitimate or a valid coin. Justice occurs when, number one, innocent people are not punished. That's justice. That's true. But that's not all there is to it. Justice also occurs, number two, when guilty people are punished. So both have to be in play. Innocent people are not punished. Guilty people are punished. Both are justice. Now, God is a just God. He's a just and holy God. And God's justice cannot allow for any guilty person to go unpunished. There's a penalty to be paid. There's a life that has to be laid down. Therefore, blood has to be shed. Just as in the governments of our world, in the kingdom of God, it's God who defines the relationship he will have with his creation. We must grasp this. God never enters into a relationship without a covenant. Let me say that again. God never enters into a relationship without a covenant. No covenant, no relationship. God has a covenant with creation. An example of this is found in the covenant that he made with Noah. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. And we'll see this. I think we'll see it clearly. Genesis chapter 8. If you know your Bibles, you know that the flood has occurred and now there is the reaction of planet Earth afterwards, after all of this calamity. And finally, we read in verse... 20, the word then. And the then is after all of the effects have dissipated and people are able to walk on land again. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And the implication is that's what he did as the first event after this period. Not 18 years later, but then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We continue reading in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to him, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. This was now the legitimization of eating meat. 
Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from, from every beast. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Just a commentary here. This is the inauguration of what is called capital punishment. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, now notice these words, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. We're actually reading amazing words. God is cutting covenant, making a covenant with all creation at this point. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. By the way, I believe this is significant because it speaks to the fact that this flood was global. It was a global flood. Otherwise, God has not been true to his promise when there are other floods. Have you noticed in history, there have been other floods, localized floods. And if God was saying, I'll never do any other flooding thing, God would have been proven to have been a liar. But because the Noahic flood was global, we've not yet had a global flood up until this date at least. Praise the Lord. Praise God for rain, though, amen? <laughs> so we continue reading. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, your offspring after you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, excuse me, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So God made covenant with every living creature. It's hard to imagine that, but that's exactly what we're reading. I have set my bow... It's his bow, not anyone else's. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now there's many different components to a covenant. And one of them were, uh, was, was seen here in terms of the sign of the covenant. That becomes significant as we plow on into redemptive history. So, first event after the flood, a covenant ceremony. Verse 20 of chapter 8, the lives of animals were laid down and the terms of the covenant were declared. So, what we read here is significant. God entered into covenant with creation. 
Let's go back to Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 9, we start in verse 15, recognizing the previous verses. And that is from verse 11 through 14, five aspects of the superiority of this new order is in play. Verse 11, Hebrews 9, 11, Christ entered the sanctuary in heaven, not the mere copy on earth. Verse 12, he did so through his own blood, not that of animals. Verse 12 again, the redemption he obtained was eternal, not a temporary covering, but an eternal redemption. Not just for a year, but for all time and for all eternity. Verse 14 is the fourth dimension. He offered himself through the eternal Holy Spirit, not through a carnal commandment. And number five, verses 13 and 14, his blood cleanses our conscience from dead works, just as our flesh from ceremonial uncleanness. All that is by way of uh, recap. Verse 15, therefore, and whenever we see a therefore, we must understand what it is therefore. That's good Bible teaching. Whenever you see a therefore, stop and realize uh, this is not the beginning of the argument. On the basis of what has come before, the next statement is made, therefore. You and I don't start a phone call and say, therefore, no. You are saying a few things before you get to the therefore. On the basis of one, two, three, and four, therefore, I will not be coming. My two legs are broken, my arm's in a sling, therefore, I won't be coming to the party. Amen. You get it. You're intelligent people. So, Christ is the mediator of that new covenant with two results. He paid the redemptive price for those who transgressed the old covenant, and those people are specifically called the called. Do you remember that? We saw that he redeemed the called. He went out to redeem them, and he did so. Fulfilling the words that the angel spoke to Joseph, if you remember, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His people are the called. He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a summons, it's a call that achieves everything it sets out to do. He calls us just as Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. He calls us out of our darkness to see the light of Christ and see him and now want him. Changing the heart on the way. So it's the redemption of the call. We now come to verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now we know this in our own culture, to receive the benefits of a will. If you know that you're named in the will, perhaps you've got a parent who is naming you or has named you in a will, he might be disclosing to you, I've named you, you'll get the benefits of my house when I die. You can't just walk up to a court and say, look, I'm named in the will, give me the house. They will require proof that your parent has died. The one who made out the will needs to be deceased before you can get the benefits of that will. You can't just say, but I want it now. That's not enough. It must be established that the person who made out the will has died. There must be a death certificate. There must be proof of death. We get that? Verse 16. Verse 17. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. This is the point we're making. Now we get that. Just because someone's named in a will, they can't receive the benefits now. There must first be the death of the one who wrote the will. Verse 18. 
Therefore, there's another therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. This therefore goes back in verse 18 to the therefore of verse 15. It relates back to verse 15. Let me just say it this way. Jesus is the only person who made out a will, died, then rose again to dish it out, and then sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we can read the fine print of the will. <laughs> and we have a promised inheritance. It's not based on our death, it's based on His. Do you see that? It's in force due to the death of Christ. He made out the will, and He died, and now that inheritance is ours. As we understand this, sometimes we have a false view of our Bibles. We think when we're reading the Old Testament, that's to do with Israel and history, and it was to do with Israel and history, but that history is our history. It's our history. We are heirs to the promises. Hear these words, Romans 8. You receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs. Yes, that's the word of inheritance, right? Heirs. H-E-I-R-S, not H-A-I-R-S, right? You got it. If children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's significant. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We have an inheritance in Christ and we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, in this aspect, everything coming to Jesus comes to us. We've inherited the same relationship with the Father as Jesus, and the way the Bible puts it in the New Testament is that you and I, as believers, are in Christ Jesus. God sees us in Christ. And just as God would never throw His Son out of heaven if you're in Christ, He'll never throw you out because you're in Him. We stand in Him. We're seated with Him in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.29 puts it this way. And if you are Christ's, Christ apostrophe S. In other words, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, many people attack Christianity and say that's just pie in the sky when you die. You ever heard that? My response is, well, it is that. It is a lot of pie in the sky when we die. But it's also steak on the plate while we wait. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it is. We've got an inheritance and it's ours now. You and I are not waiting to enter into relationship with God. We have it now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Not when you die, but when you call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And there's not this time lag of 8,000 years before it happens. No. You call and you're saved. And when you're saved, you're entering into something that is an eternal inheritance, secured by, by not your obedience, but His. Not by your death, but His. Your death will get you certain benefits that you'll see, but you have them now. In Christ, you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, you got it now. 
And you might look at me and say, if I had it now, wouldn't I know it? No, not unless you read the inheritance. Not unless you allow the Holy Spirit to help you read the fine print. To realize, I got it now. I'm not waiting for justification, I have it now. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people are waiting. Some people are hoping. On a deathbed, they ask the priest or the rabbi, have I done enough? The answer is, no, you've never done enough. But Christ did. He is sufficient. He saves all who call upon him because he's a great savior. We in heaven are not going to be ever singing songs about our faithfulness. I got here by what I did. We're going to be singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He redeemed us by his blood. We're going to see that in more clarity today. Not just pie in the sky when you die, but steak on the plate while you wait. Praise the Lord. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. Hyssop was a weed-like plant that grew everywhere in the Middle East. Very ordinary, very obtainable. Nothing spiritual about it. It was a plant. And with that plant, that hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Notice that. He sprinkled the book, he sprinkled the people. That word book could also be translated scroll, which is interesting. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So he's sprinkling the book, sprinkling the people, and saying at the same time, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Do you get the picture? We see that picture in Exodus chapter 24. Keep your place in Hebrews. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 24. The Ten Commandments have been outlined in chapter 20, the laws that God commanded. There were other laws mentioned as we continue reading, and then verse uh, 1 of chapter 24 outlines a covenant ceremony that took place. Look at verse 1 with me. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they were alive at this point, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now notice this. And Moses took half of the blood the blood that came from these animals, and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Picture that. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it, now, look at this, on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
So he's sprinkling everything around him, including the people. He took the blood, threw it on the people and said, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. These words are significant. It's significant. He threw the blood on the people outside of this, meaning there was... uh, Let me put it in human terms. There must have been a huge laundry bill. Think about that. Everybody's getting blood sprinkled. What on earth? I'm not coming to church if that's what happens. Why was all this happening? It was stressing the solemnity of the covenant. You disobey and you die. Just as these animals have died and given their blood so that this ceremony takes place, you disobey and you die. And that would be forever etched in the consciousness of the people. You come to a service and you get blood sprinkled deliberately by the preacher, that's going to make a mark as well as a huge laundry bill. And what was it saying? It was saying this, my blood's in play. My life's in play in this. My life's on the line as I'm entering into this covenant with Yahweh God. And death is the suitable sacrifice. We're in Exodus. Go to the right. The next book is the book of Leviticus. Go to chapter 17. And verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This was laws given to Israel. Look at verse 11. It's a very significant verse. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. By the way, when Moses wrote this, He wouldn't have known, naturally speaking, what we now know in the 21st century. That's been a recent discovery that to find out how someone's doing, you take their blood. And yet you get your blood drawn. And a few days later, you might go to the office and you get the results to tell you you've got this issue or that issue or everything's fine. That's because, medically speaking, our whole life is represented by the blood. You've got good blood, you've got good health. And so it's a medical statement, but it's more than that. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. Aren't you glad that God knows that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and he can reveal it thousands of years before medical science catches up? I like that. Look at this. I've given it for you on the altar, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So, whenever atonement takes place, blood has to be in play, in play because the life of the flesh, the life of a person, is in the blood. Go on. Well, there's no real need to turn to it. There's only a few words, but you know this scripture, I'm sure. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, it says this. Are you hearing it? The soul who sins shall die. What do you know? What do you do with that? We just have to accept it. Death is so much 
on the cards for the one who sins, it is the only possible thing that could be in play because of the seriousness of sin. Sin requires death. We are so flippant with sin at times, but we need to step back and take the big picture look at this and realize sin is so serious that it requires death every time. Hear this word, Romans 6.23, you know it. The wages of sin is death. Is God overreacting? No, that's the legitimate outcome for what sin is. It's so treasonous to say, I will, rather than I'll obey God. I'll do my own thing. I'll transgress. I'll not do what he's told me, and I'll overstep every boundary. I'm going to do this. And because of the holiness and majesty of God, it's of such a defiance that it deserves death. The wages of sin is death. And the fact is, God is a good wage payer. Everybody dies because we're sinners. The wages of sin is death. Let's grasp hold of that before we get to the positive. Oh, get to the positive. Well, we'll get to the positive, but recognize the negative. The wages of sin is death. Then it is that we can now say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the end of verse 23 of Romans 6. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, summing it up, a covenant always requires a sacrifice. A sacrifice always requires the shedding of blood, and the shedding of blood speaks of a life laid down. Now, in the Old Testament, the blood of animals, calves and goats and lambs, was a temporary measure. It was an impermanent arrangement, but it pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ. Do you remember what John said as he saw him outlined in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb was shed for the people of God. Let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, look with me in verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. We're reminding ourselves of that. And then, keep your place there, let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Should be easy to find. We've read it earlier in the service. Matthew chapter 26, I want to highlight words that Jesus said regarding this. Matthew 26, I'm after verse 28, but we'll start in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. Now notice these words, verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, that's the people of God, for the forgiveness of sins. Notice he said, my blood of the covenant. There's so much in this. There are so many layers. Let's go to verse 21 of Hebrews 9. I hope you kept your place there. Hebrews 9, 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
Now, we need to understand this. Everything involved in that covenant was sprinkled with blood, otherwise it wasn't valid. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now notice these words. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. R.C. Sproul was once asked the question if Jesus was in his carpenter's shop and was working on a wooden project, perhaps building a chair or a cabinet of some sort, and in the course of that he pricked his finger and blood came out of his finger, would that have been enough to atone for sin? It's an unusual question. But his answer was very strong. He said no. Although that was the right commodity, the blood of Jesus. When the Bible speaks of the blood of Jesus, it's in the context of the complete life laid down. It's blood shed in death, not blood that's spilt because of a prick on the finger. No, it's Jesus' blood at the cross that saves us. His blood shed in death. Let me remind you of what we've established. A covenant requires a sacrifice. A sacrifice requires the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood requires a life laid down. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but Genesis 22 is about Abraham and God's call to him to offer Isaac. Do you remember that? Offer him on the altar. Now, when two parties enter into covenant, the agreement is this. All I have, is yours, all you have is mine. Do you know marriage is a covenant? According to the book of Malachi. Marriage is a covenant. And in that we say similar words. All I have is yours, all you have is mine. What is mine is yours, what's yours is mine. And so God could legally, because Abraham entered into a covenant, ask for the life of his covenant partner, Abraham, at any time. If God demanded or needed his covenant partner to lay down his life, the covenant partner should do it. My covenant partner has a need of me giving my life, no question, I'll do it. That's exactly what's going on in Genesis 22. God asked, not for Abraham's life, but the life of his son Isaac, with whom he had all the promises. And so it was something of a dilemma for Abraham because God was requiring the death of Isaac, but there was not this 28 days to think about it. Early the next morning he rose and took Isaac, his son, because he's a covenant man. But also he knew this, God would have to raise Isaac from the dead because all of the promises have to be fulfilled in this boy. So the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 comment, commentates on this whole event and basically has this as the concept. Abraham was about to slay his son and then step back and say, all right, I did my part, now you raise him from the dead. You're obligated. He received him back as a type. He believed in the resurrection of Isaac before he killed him. Now, he's about to slay him. You know the story. <coughs> and an angel graciously yelled, Abraham! <coughs> Abraham! And stopped the sacrifice. Now, there's a number of things going on. There were 
child sacrifices going on in that particular part of the Middle East, and I believe God was bringing an end to that with his people. That's not the way that they'll approach him, child sacrifice. He's bringing an end to that. But notice that God intervened and stopped it, but knew that Abraham was a committed man. And Abraham knew he was a committed covenant man. Those that know their Bibles know that the place where Isaac was there on the altar was Mount Moriah. Many scholars in our day believe that Mount Moriah relates to Golgotha and Calvary in Jerusalem, just outside the city walls. Now, we can't be sure of it, but it's certainly in that neck of the woods, so to speak, where thousands of years later, for Abraham, it's as if God said this, do you remember I asked for the death of your son because I need it? Right now, you need the death of my son. And there in the same place, the Son of God was sacrificed for sin because Abraham and his descendants needed it. It's fathomless. The difference is, when the Lord Jesus went to the cross, no one yelled, stop. He hung there for us. He became the curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The book of Deuteronomy says, and Galatians says, and that was a fulfillment of what Jesus did. He became the curse for us. We needed Christ, and so God sent his Son into the world to live a sinless life as the blameless Son of God and the Lamb of God who went to the cross and the sins of God's people were laid on him. And he suffered in our place. What was due to us? Death because of sin. Came upon the Son of God who died a real death for sin in our place. Our sins were laid on him and God's Imputing grace means that the very life of Jesus is counted to us. Our life was counted to him, that of a sinner. Jesus was never a sinner, but died in the place of sinners. He, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a display. There on Mount Calvary, Abraham, for you to be justified in Genesis 15 requires the death of my son. It's going to happen. You believe what I say. I'm going to count the death of Christ, which is yet future, to be yours. Do you realize that? Everyone who's in heaven is there by the same means. The death of the Lord Jesus plus nothing. The cross of Jesus Christ saved Abraham. How come when it was thousands of years before the time of Christ that Abraham lived, on the basis of what would come. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Where does he get it? the righteousness from? Not from some tree in heaven, but the righteous life of Christ. God knows my son will be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die an atoning death, be raised from the dead, and be exalted the place of all authority so that anyone who repents and believes is in the kingdom of God, forgiven, justified forever. Abraham believed God and God says, all that will take place I count to you now. 
And for us, when we call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus doesn't have to come a second time to die for sin. We look back. Abraham looked forward and was justified. We look back and are justified. But by the same sacrifice, all in the kingdom of God rejoice in the courts of heaven because we're saved by the blood and the death of Christ alone. Abraham needed a savior. God says, I'll come and I'll pay the price in the person of my son. He laid down his life. He shed his blood unto death. And you remember, no one yelled, stop. Andrew Murray writes this, God is willing to receive man back again to his fellowship, to admit him to his heart and his love, to make a covenant with him, to give full assurance of all this, but not without blood. Even his own son, the almighty and all-perfect one, the gift of his eternal love, even he could only redeem us and enter the Father's presence in submission to the word, not without blood. But blessed be God, the blood of the Son of God, in which there was the life of the eternal spirit, has been given and has wrought an eternal redemption. He did indeed bear our sins and take them away. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There can be no fellowship with God, but in the blood, in the death of his beloved son. Back to Hebrews. The final statement of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Back to my earlier illustration of the dollar bill. No forgeries work in God's kingdom. Man in his little garage is very good at coming up with alternative plans. False Christs. False Gospels. And just as, unless we have a legitimate coin or a legitimate dollar bill, it won't spend in the United States it's not legal tender or recognized in the United States. So in the courts of heaven, only Christ's sacrifice is authorized. Only the real Christ can really save. And that's why all false gospels are not just slightly missing it. They are treasonous, rebellious acts of idolatry. I'll not come under the government of God. I'll do my own thing. I'll make my own money. I'll make my own way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the legitimate Savior and the only one. That's why every false gospel that says, you need Jesus, but you also need this. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ plus nothing. We're saved. We're justified by the grace of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. No messing with this. You mess with this, you can't be saved. We can have disagreements on lesser issues. I'm not sure in the realm of even 10 Christians you've got full agreement on the end times about what happens when. We've all got our different charts. 
I'm sure some people will be going up and saying, this is against my theology as they go up to heaven. You know, they're going to have issues. What we are agreed on are the big stuff and that he's coming again and he will judge the living and the dead. On this, we have to get it right. We must believe in the real Jesus and the true gospel. But praise be to God. In the great hymn of William Cowper, he wrote these words. I know you know them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. One man wrote these words, Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant because the covenant is established by the shedding of his blood. Therefore, those who belong to Jesus will receive an eternal inheritance. Those under the old covenant were limited to an earthly inheritance, which is temporary and foreshadows a better inheritance, a heavenly one. The Hebrew author explains in some detail that the old covenant was ratified and inaugurated with blood just as wills become effective at death. The close link between blood and death in that paragraph there in Hebrews demonstrates that the shedding of blood signifies death. Forgiveness comes at the expense of the death of the victim. The author's point is that the readers have an eternal inheritance because they have a better sacrifice. The blood of the Messiah avails far better than the blood of any animal. Still, the sacrificial ritual of the old covenant forecasts and anticipates the death of Christ, demonstrating that death is necessary for the sins to be forgiven. Here's where the gospel of Christ comes in. It is the remedy for sin. And when we understand that we are sinners, what a cause of rejoicing this is. Jesus Christ is the substitute, the only authorized substitute for the soul who sins. Outside of Christ, the soul who sins will die. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has died for us. He died for our sins. As simple as it is. There was a great theologian who had been very much used of God with his writings, his articles, his books. And for 60 years he'd been a theologian. He was once in a children's Sunday school class. and was asked by a little eight-year-old, a very big question. What's the greatest lesson you ever learned? And he said this. Oh, I, I rejoice to tell you because I was, I think, eight years old myself when I first learned the best and the most amazing truth I ever learned as a theologian. It was this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's in the death of Christ that we rejoice for all eternity. Jesus laid down his life. He poured out his blood on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
What's the application? Let's revel in this, but not for eight minutes. You know, as we think about how to apply this, we're not going to just have eight minutes of songs. We'll be singing about this for eternity. And 85,000 years from now, you'll not be bored singing songs of redemption. Because over and over, the Holy Spirit shows you more and more and more of what the sacrifice of Jesus achieved. And if we can grasp this, it's going to be hard for us to just walk plainly out of the building today. He saved me by the death of the Son of God. Do you hear that? He actually came and lived for me and died for me. Are you grasping this? God himself made the plan. It was made from all eternity. Did God know about me? He knew about you and he came for you. Mission saved God's people. If you're amongst them, he came for you. He lived for you. I'm tempted to sin. Oh, but Abraham needs me. And the people of God needs me. John needs me. Joseph needs me. Mary needs me. Alexander needs me. Your name. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Then realize his death availed for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. May we ever and ever thrill at him to know the redemption that is ours because he did it all. He paid it all. All to him I owe. May we in covenant relationship understand that what God requires of us is to now live for our covenant partner, God himself. Jesus said, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's covenant language. We're in covenant with God. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.